prayers and thoughts for all the people that um, protect us. Um, it's a really hard week um, for everyone. Um, so um, let's just keep praying. Um, for all my for all my teachers, um, for all the students, for the lives that are affected. There's hope. There's hope, my friends. There's hope. Um, so last week, um, we started our um, summer book series on the book of uh, Colossians. We talked last week um, and affirmed that the only way to know a counterfeit from the real thing was to look at the authentic true thing. Paul encourages the church in Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. If you look on our map, it's there. Um, and uh, he talked about authentic truth being um, Colossians 117. If you were here with us last week, it says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, meaning the state of condition being superior to all others' authority, power, or status. <coughs> and my friends, there is nothing greater than Christ Jesus. Anything created, existing, non-existing, alive, dead, spiritual, unspiritual, everything bows before Christ Jesus. And so Paul talks about knowing the real thing by looking at the real thing. And knowing what a counterfeit is by looking at the real thing, which is Christ Jesus. So in our study last week, we looked at how the church in Colossae was struggling with a counterfeit problem, believing in Gnosticism, which is translated from the Greek word um, gnosis, which means having knowledge, which in their case could not be further from the truth. Gnosticism, for short, was a powerful myth, distortion of the truth that rejected and denied the deity of Christ Jesus. And today, in a nutshell, it can be easily compared to today's belief that you may find your own truth or look within yourself, or even, as Disney says, follow your heart. I love Disney, by the way. Um, is growing up. But they even say, you are your own God. We are not God. <laughs> um, we would be terrible gods. So uh, moving on to our uh, study tonight, we're going to look at Colossians one twenty one to Colossians um, one twenty nine, but only touch on three specific points to the text. So kind of to help us better understand, I'm going to give you a, a road map. I laid out three points for us to kind of zero in <clears throat> on tonight's text. First one is alienation to citizenship. Second is defining citizenship, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And lastly, all are welcomed, no experience needed. Um, so in verse uh, 21, and you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. What our lives once were as we were far away from God, living as the enemy of God, maybe here in proud opposition, almost maybe 
volatile to God's truth because we were slaves committed to our own fleshly desires. And in this way, we were owned and purchased by Satan. The literal translation for the Greek word alienated here is transferred to another owner. The key word in 21 is once, because this change of ownership, which is much more deep and different than like making a deal in, in Monopoly, <laughs> it transfers us from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption for forgiveness of sins. And that's Colossians 1, 13 through 14. And because of the curse, from the very beginning, circa Genesis 3, the eating of the apple, which you're all so familiar with, the tree of good and evil, we belong to the sinful race of Adam, alienated from God. And this alienation, as David Guzik writes, is a choice that we accepted and we embraced with our wicked works. We can sit here, like myself, and blame Adam for our sin and why we do it till the cows come home. But really, when we look closer, our mind and our behavior fully embraces the choice openly to rebel against God. Furthermore, where Eve argues that they were simply just tricked by the serpent into eating the fruit, we, on the other hand, plainly, I know plainly what I'm doing when I sin. We walk right into our own slaughterhouses of sin. There's no trickery, no deceit needed here. But now, Jesus becomes the difference. Jesus becomes the difference. He is the difference between who we once were and now who we are in Christ Jesus. Alienation to citizenship. John 17, 14 through 15 says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We are no longer foreigners. We are children of the Most High if we believe in Christ Jesus. Our citizenship is heaven-bound in the world, but not of it, an eternal heavenly citizenship, because in verse 22, Christ Jesus has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you and I holy and blameless, above reproach before him. Our old selves, those flashback versions of ourselves, hostile to God, now meet the holy, pure, and blameless blood of the Lamb, transferring his holy and righteousness upon us newly found wayward rebels. Paul, intending to paint actually a really grim picture, this bleak 
picture of hopelessness, which is mankind lost to the mortal sin of flesh, now declares men's total depravity, reconciled by his death, Christ's death on the cross, righteous and free of sin before God. So like the bride tainted by sin, dressed in a black wedding gown, and actually people, that's a thing now, I think it's like a, um, a Instagram fad. It's now transformed and washed as white as snow before the throne of grace on the cross. And Christ Jesus is the bridegroom, and those who follow Christ and surrender their lives are likened to as the church, Christ's bride. And John said in John 3.29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy is mine and is now complete. Our sin makes us an unfaithful spouse, almost as Gomer, a prostitute, married to Hosea, the prophet. She continued to pursue other lovers. She was hostile to what was good, pure, and holy, and alienated, giving fully into her desire for passion. She becomes estranged from Hosea and becomes a slave somewhere. This is from the book of Hosea. Yet Hosea goes and he pursues her. And he pursues her like she pursued her lovers. And he finds her and he buys her back from slavery. Hosea 2, 2 to 3 says this, So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot. No, you shall have a man. So too I will be towards you. And Hosea here, he didn't need to buy her back. She was her wife, her bride, but he does. And he continues to do so as a display of his unwavering love and commitment to her, which is beyond reason. And here, he, Hosea, is reconciled with his bride, Gomer, the prostitute. And this transferal from slave to freedom is championing true reconciliation, alienation, alienation to citizenship through Christ Jesus. And reconciliation is defined as the end of estrangement or separation caused by the original sin between God and humanity. Christ Jesus, through his reconciliation on the cross, by his body of flesh, which he was 100% man, but also 100% God, presented himself as a sacrifice in death in order to present you and I holy and blameless and beyond reproach, without accusation before him. Just like the priests in the Old Testament inspecting animals for potential sacrifices, looking for blemishes, here God presents us as living sacrifices, 
holy and blameless and without any sin, without any accusation, because of his unrelenting, unwavering, not until death do us part, but in death we are part of life. Life eternally, at a bridegroom's side, forgiven and loved forever. We are no longer alienated, owned, slaves to our sinful natures, but now our citizenship rests in heaven, but children and co-heirs with Christ. As Psalm 113.12 puts it, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my sin. How far has he removed your sin and our transgressions from us by his body on the cross? And in verse 23, he reiterates what we already know from our series, God questions how one would persevere in their faith and in the end will be saved. However, this verse is more focused on what reconciliation really is and what it looks like through Christ's sacrifice, through genuine faith more than losing your salvation. Paul writes, if you indeed continue in your faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So here, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard in Christ Jesus, all of this is a reminder for us today as Christians and non-Christians and those who may be seeking and not finding a desire to preserve and living in holiness and being blameless and being above reproach is impossible, as Daniel said, in our own power because of our sin. But it is possible with Christ's perfection. Scott McKnight, a New Testament theologian, writes this, Paul maintains to preach the gospel to the church of Colossae and reminds them, especially since he is the chief, he reminds himself as he is the chief of sinners, which comes from 1 Timothy 1.15, who has not met them, he has not met this church, he's yet writing them, that has been changed and transformed into the minister of gospel that he is today, but yet in the same salvation is a gift. But this response must be of gratitude, faith, and obedience. So live striving to repent from your sin through the Holy Spirit's power and live in God's holiness, which covers our bodies of sin. And let the Lord, the Lord and the word of God transform and transform your heart to a desire, to desire a heart which is captivated by Christ. Because the person you once were is not who you are anymore. And we know Paul was Saul, and he was killing Christians, and he was throwing them in prison. And by his own power, by his own zealous heart for this God, yet Christ transformed his life and who he was is not who he is. 
Because he is in Christ Jesus. And his whole New Testament, most of the New Testament, is written by a murderer. Who are we? Who are we with our own power? Philippians 4, 8 through 9 talks about this transformed heart that Saul had and Paul, his new name in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 8 through 9 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, Paul, or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. That's that transformed heart. So point two is this, defining citizenship, which is in Christ, is in you, the hope of glory. So what does the citizenship practically look like? Now, verse 24 says this, now I rejoice in sufferings, for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affections for the sake of his body, that is the church, of you which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26, in the mystery hidden for ages and generations are now revealed to his saints or believers. And here it is, friends, the crescendo. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. For this, I, Paul, toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So now, verses 24 to 25, which is not really our focus, but I want to make something very clear here. It may seem ironic to some that Paul seems to be about boasting about his sufferings and what he did for the sake of the church and for Christ himself in this passage, as he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. But this could be not more from the truth. Paul never preached himself. He never did this and refused to do so. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says this, For what we preach is not of ourselves, but of Christ Jesus as the Lord, and ourselves are servants for Jesus' sake. So in verse 24, Paul talks about his resume of sufferings as they were many to help build confidence in him as a leader, almost inspiring the people of Colossae so they would do the same to show the power of Christ transforming to him to ultimately a changed man who ironically, we said, put to death Christians before his heart change. And here, Paul talks about rejoicing in suffering for your sake. And as he's writing this, he's writing it in a jail cell to proclaim the gospel. So this is the kind of suffering that really gives suffering a new name. And because of this, many of the palace guards were proclaiming 
and seeing these people being arrested and praising the Lord, and people were coming to faith. And that was from the book of Philippians. This word affliction, though, Paul uses is not the affliction and the suffering Christ suffered on the cross, to be clear, but the ones Jesus endured in his ministry and the ones Paul is going through here. So, through this suffering, Paul lays out his stewardship and his authority in Christ Jesus in verse 25. And he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given for me to you to make the word of God known. And then he goes on to speak about the true revelation and the knowledge, which is all about to make the word of God fully known. So now to verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints or believers. So Paul here unravels this mystical mystery, which we talked about two weeks ago, that was imparted by the cult and the heresy of Gnosticism to remind the Colossians that what was hidden was now revealed to all believers through Christ Jesus and not to just those who had these higher thinking, which was part of this mysticism and Gnosticism. Paul stresses the word here, fully known, as many of the Colossians were buying the lie that only this elite mysticism could really reach their full potential or fully know all things. So Paul here is rebuking this thinking and letting people know that it is revealed to those who are believers and disciples of Christ Jesus, to all believers. All of us in here tonight, we're made to be known by God. By God who knows all things, created all things, and is all things. He brings us into a relationship with him. Setting the bar by showing mankind the true definition of what a relationship is all about. Real authentic relationships that we should be like, as we were created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, to mirror him, to be like Christ to others, to be set apart only for him, our creator, which a relationship should be centered around, bringing God glory in everything. All of us were created for that relationship. And as far as I can remember, my heart was characterized by pursuing, yearning, craving to be known, to be cared for, for the hidden scars or blemishes of who I was and the intimacies of my heart, once vulnerable and known, to be then loved all the more. But if your life flashback to your old self before Christ or where you might find yourself tonight if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. It might have a lot in common with what mine was in college. At the time, my life was characterized by filling, filling this like empty hole that was in my heart with relationship after relationship, outward success or even dependency on parties or drinking to have a good time. And this emptiness 
in my heart, this hole in my heart that I was searching for, this hope that I was looking for, was so misplaced by thinking that if I got into another relationship or I had another encounter with someone else, that I would be fulfilled. But what I missed was the hope of glory, the prize, Christ Jesus calling my name, calling out to me, calling me out of these toxic relationships that I lived my life and that I built my life upon. Paul is direct here that this mystery is not found in our works or devotion to God or the Gnostics would say their own spirituality, my relationships, my money. You can't take a Porsche in a funeral. You can't. When you die, you can't take anything with you. But the truth that I so clearly missed is the abiding presence, this hope of glory that Paul talks about is Christ in you through the Holy Spirit. So Paul's clear here. Christ is the mystery, and the same mystery is revealed through Christ and the Colossian church among those who believe in Christ Jesus. Paul revealed the gospel to many people, the Jews, the revelation to the Gentiles who were non-Jews, was a striking one because of the relationship of Jews and Gentiles, one that continues to unravel a true mystery of love. David Garland, the theologian, speaks about this unraveling mystery and the relationship between the Jew and the Gentiles when he writes, this revelation of Christ Jesus and the offering of his salvation to the Gentiles was also a key part of this mystery since the Jews, it would have been impossible for them to imagine a God that would bring individuals outside from the Mosaic Covenant. Now, I'm going to go over what that is here. Um, the Mosaic Covenant was centered around God's giving his divine law to Moses on Mount Sinai, excuse me, um, through the Ten Commandments, which I'm sure some of you have heard of. Um, if Israel here, with the Ten Commandments, is obedient, then God blesses them. But if they disobey, God will then punish them. The blessings and the curses are associated with this conditional covenant and are found in, in Deuteronomy 28. And through this Mosaic law, Israel was to follow the Ten Commandments and to be a light in a dark world. They were to be separate, called out a nation so that everyone would see the glory and the power of how these people were different than anyone else as they worshipped Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Because we know we break our commandments and our covenants. It is significant because here Israel received the Mosaic Law, and it was almost like if you go to a school and a teacher's teaching you, here, the Mosaic Law and the Ten Commandments, because none of us can keep them, right? And it shows that Christ Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish it. They're not important anymore. They are important. And it points back to the coming of Christ Jesus who fulfilled every single one of the commandments that no one 
of us could ever keep. So for a Gentile, a non-Jew, having the access to Yahweh as Israel, as God's people, was a true mystery. And Paul, which in all the sense and purposes, is what Jesus came to fulfill, as Paul said. And it's no longer a mystery, but here that mystery is unraveled in Christ Jesus. He's no longer the invisible God, the image. He is seen, clear, present in every way through the incarnation, the dwelling of Christ, 100% man, but 100% God, and now fully alive in the Holy Spirit, which is within us, the hope of glory. Which brings us to our last point as we wrap everything up. As we welcome no experience needed. So now, all are welcome. No experience needed. So verse 28. In him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. The word here is everyone. We notice that here it's used three times in one small verse of 28. Now, a distinction must be made here between all those welcome in Christ Jesus, which is absolutely true, no caveats. All are welcome to the table in Christ Jesus, but a distinction with those who don't accept the invitation to the table. So all are welcome, but those there are some those who don't accept that invitation. But here, Paul presents his final parting blow of the chapter against this heretical mysticism, which from Colossae, by making it abundantly clear that all are welcome in Christ Jesus. All are able to come to maturity in Christ Jesus. Not those just who think they're elite or wise, which was part of this heretical mysticism spreading through the church. And in today, it's, I am God. I am my own God. Find your own truth. Believe in yourself. The power is within you. All those things are alive and well today. As theologian F.F. F. Bruce says this, the poignant use and repeating of the word everyone here was to remind the Colossians that truly there were no spiritual elite among them that fit into the body of Christ. Rather, it was a come-as-you-are theology, welcoming all sinners and all people in every way of life. But Paul also uses the word mature. He begins, he begs the church of Colossae to build, win, and send. Build, win, and send. Building the church up, winning others to Christ, discipling them to full maturity, and sending them out all over again. Lather, rinse, and repeat. I never understood that. <laughs> but Paul is exhorting the church to teach everyone with full wisdom, and to lead everyone to mature maturity in Christ Jesus. And lastly, verse 29, he's toiling after this, struggling, 
giving it all that he has, but he isn't relying on his own power, as Daniel said, but the power that comes from the hope of glory. So when I flash back to my life, when I didn't know Christ Jesus, there was a time in my life when I hit rock bottom, and there was this campus ministry called Disciple Makers that came and showed me the purpose and the person of Christ Jesus, who I was without Christ. But it became very evident in my life when I was around them, how I lived my life, that I wasn't a Christian, that I wasn't following God. But they paid no mind. They didn't reject me. They didn't shun me because of my sin. They didn't put me in a closet. But instead, one by one, they intentionally entered in a relationship with me, just like Jesus did. Knowing too, like me, that they were wretched sinners saved by grace, that they too were beggars telling the other beggars where the food was. Pointing me back to Jesus and encourage me to live differently because of the love of Christ. Can you relate to that tonight? But what if, for a moment, in the lowest part of my life, this Christian community that I told you about shunned me for my sin and let me go or even told me that I had to clean up my act before I entered into a relationship with God or even them? See, what happens in the church sometimes, and what often, what Christians do sometimes, when they come to Christ, is they feel like they have to clean themselves up before they come. Or when they meet someone who doesn't know Christ, and their idea of God in the scriptures might be clearly off, instead of choosing to love our neighbor, as ourself, we, we correct them. And they're newer believers. They just come out. They may not even be believers. And instead of letting the Holy Spirit and God do the work in their hearts, we shun them and we tell them what they need to do. I've done it as an adult, I confess. Or when it comes to even evangelism, in a conversation with someone who doesn't believe in God, are we loving in the way we present the gospel to them? How are they supposed to see Jesus if we're ramming it down their throats instead of loving them with the gospel, the true word of God? Do sometimes, do we take on the counselor, Mr. or Mrs. Fix-It, knight in shining armor, that can show them this, this lofty Jesus persona, or do we just use the word of God? We preach love. We preach the word of God, not the gospel of man. Or do we look at it from, I'm a sinner perspective, and I found someone who loves me unconditionally, that will never leave me or forsake me like mankind will your spouse or your best friend, your parents or a teacher, they will all let you down. I have let many people down in my life, but Christ will never let you down. Come as you are 
F-bombs and all. <laughs> well, what about those who disagree with you? People who believe different things on gender identity, homosexuality, people on the opposite political spectrum, gun laws, atheists, people that you hate. Yes. The Bible tells us to preach the word in love and to stand on truth. But do you and I handle these conversations? Do we handle these relationships with the love of Christ and a, all are welcome, no experience needed? All are welcome to the table mentality. And I don't know if I do. I don't know if I do. However, there's one significant difference between the ones who accept the invitation to the table and those who make the journey to it. The Bible is very clear that not everyone will be saved. The false teaching of universalism says all people will be saved, regardless of what they believe. And that's false. Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If we have been transferred, bought, ransomed from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, into the kingdom of light, there must be a difference in my life. There must be a difference in your life. Living for fire insurance. Jesus, to me, only saves me from hell. I'm a good person. Believe in yourself. Find your own truth. Is the same lie from hell alive today that the Gnostics believed? If who we once were and who we are in Christ are vaguely similar, we must be warned. If who we are in Christ and if who we once were are vaguely similar, we must be warned. Gandhi, a Hindu, known for his love and peace, said this, and this hurts. Ready for this? I love your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Sickest bird. Are we different? Have we gone from alienation to citizenship of Christ, the King of the Most High, the co-heirs with Christ? Does the hope of glory reside in you, in me, in how we love others, how we think, and what we do and what we say, the priorities that are revealed about ourselves, even our spending habits? Are we going through the motions, tricking others into thinking we are transformed by Christ, but instead... We are living a lie. What is secret will be revealed, and no secret to God, especially when we are judged before a perfect and holy God. We are only fooling ourselves. Do we love when it's convenient, or is our love an unparalleled, kind of unrelenting Hosea for Gomer, it makes no sense, Christ's sacrificial kind of love? So I'm going to close with one more quote. You thought 
The Gandhi quote hurts. This one hurt too. Brennan Manning, from a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, writes, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Let's pray. Lord God, the hope of glory. We lay this week before you one of the hardest weeks in our nation's history, Father. With all this death, But Lord, we know that you are the definition of life. We know that you bring dead people alive. And Father, tonight we ask that you would bring us from the dominion of darkness into the light of your Son, your beloved Son, Christ Jesus, who is above all things, in all things, and makes all things howl together. Father, we lay all our relationships, we lay our hidden sins, our outward sins, we lay our lives, as you know, as many hairs are on our heads. We give you our lives tonight as the day is evil, as you are the light of life. And Father, I pray that the same things that we say are the same things that we do, that the people we once were are no longer than we are new in Christ Jesus. We are a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. So Father, tonight we lay all our burdens at the feet of the cross, knowing that you are good, that you will never leave us, never forsake us, that there is not a moment that you are not with us in the mire, in the muck, holding our hands, reaching out, calling our name, calling us back to your arms. So for everyone in here, Father, that has not accepted your goodness and your grace and your fulfillment. As we know that we are sinners, we have fallen short of the glory of God, for all have sinned and fallen short of your glory and your goodness. So thank you, Father, for tonight. And we just ask you to impart your grace upon our time of discussion and our pizza. In your name, amen. All right, guys. Um, so we are going to stop now.